chapter 24. Uh, we will be in 1 Samuel 24. Lord willing, we will finish 1 Samuel 24 this morning. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, and uh, when you have found that place, I am going to ask you, uh, if you're physically able to do so, um, if, you are, uh, if you are able to stand, please stand as we one more time honor God's Word by standing and reading together. Um, let our eyes focus upon the text and hear the Word of the Lord that's given to us this morning as I read the text. 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, hear the Word of the Lord. And it came to pass, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, which was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave, or that's in the recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of the hem of Saul's robe secretly. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart struck him or smote him because he had cut off Saul's robe edge or skirt. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the, he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and allowed them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went his way, or went on his way. And David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore, hear your, <clears throat> hear your men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt. And behold, this day your eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered you, in, delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And some bid me kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see... Yea, see the skirt of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the, the skirt of your robe and killed you not. Know you not, uh, know and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and you, and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. As says the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue after a dead dog and a flea? The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and you, and see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of your hand. And it shall come to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded you evil. And, he, and you have showed me this day how that you have dealt with me well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into your hand, you killed me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well, uh, let him go well away? Wherefore, the Lord reward you good for that you have done to me this day. 
And now, behold, I know well that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear now, therefore, to me by the Lord, that you will not cut off my seed after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the hold or the stronghold. Let's pray. Father, we ask now your blessing upon not only the reading of your word, but the, uh, the preaching of your word. We ask that your name would be glorified in this, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Years ago uh, in Europe, there was, a, there was a story, there's a story told of a young girl who had never traveled by train. Of course, trains are very big in Europe, still today, not so much here, um, but, uh, but years ago. And as, she, as her family put her on the train to travel to visit other, uh, other friends and family members in other places, um, she noticed that there was a river that ran, that ran near the train. And as she feared water, she saw that this train was going to have to cross this river. And she began to be very anxious. And uh, all of a sudden, as they drew closer and closer, she noticed that a bridge appeared. And the train traveled safely across the river. And this happened and was repeated for several more times until at last she leaned back with a long breath of relief and said, Somebody has put bridges for us all the way. Well, the reality is, is that life is like this a lot, isn't it? Life is like this a lot. There are so many evils. There are so many troubles. There are so many trials. There are so many problems that we face daily as people, as, uh, even as people of God. There are so many things that seem to loom large before us. There are so many things that seem to, to, to threaten to, to overwhelm us, threaten to threaten our, even at times our faith to overwhelm our faith. But God has promised faithfully to care for us. God has promised to faithfully watch over us, as we see in our text this morning out of 1 Samuel chapter 24. We see God caring for David. We see God providing all of the necessary protections, even though it was not easy, even though it was at times very difficult. And I think it has a lot to say to us. Uh, God has, in other words, I think, built bridges, uh, proverbially, uh, proverbially speaking, uh, as we face difficulties so that we can, while difficulties may not uh, be taken away from us, we are able to safely cross and pass over. So this morning what I want to do is I want to show you three reactions realities about trusting God. Three realities about trusting God as we look at this passage. I think if we had to name this uh, this sermon, I think we would, I would simply name it the God we trust. Uh, I think it's that simple out of 1 Samuel 24, the God whom we trust. So let's look at the three realities about trusting God this morning. Number one, I think it's found in verses 1 through 7, and it's simply this. We are to trust God to deal with and to repay our enemies. We are to trust God to deal with and to repay our enemies. I think in verse 1 and 2, you see really see the madness of sin that Saul has fallen into. Saul has dealt with, and Saul has bigger, bigger fish to fry, so to speak. And yet, what does he do after he makes sure that the Philistines are out of the land, the invading army has been driven back out of the land? What is the first thing that he thinks about doing? Going into the wilderness with an army of 3,000 men to kill somebody. That's what he thinks of. The madness of sin, I think, is, is clearly... I mean, Saul doesn't care about how many fronts he's having to fight on, although it's clear that he's fighting on two different fronts at this point. He's fighting an external threat, he perceives, and an internal threat. He is fighting David and the Philistines both at the same time. 
and we know that neither one of these can be done at the same time well. And we see Saul's madness just, just over and over again throughout this interaction. Um, David, David and Saul continually have this interaction, and Saul continually returns to his madness of trying to destroy David, of trying to kill him. Even though, as we'll see in the text later on, Saul even admits, I know you're going to be king. I know God has established you to be the next king. Saul's madness and his sin has driven him to even disrespect God's will and to seek to destroy that whom God has, has anointed as the next king of Israel. And in reality, our sin does that to us, doesn't it? Our sin constantly lies to us. Our sin constantly tells us things that are not true. Now, it will convince us that it is true, right? That if I can just do this, or if I can just look at that, or if I can just think about this, or if I can just do this, or have this, or have that, then our, 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 our wants will be satisfied. And in reality, that's not true. Because in the reality, what happens is our lies lead us to obsession. Our lies literally lead us into madness. It, they lead us into greater and greater and greater sin. And I, I would say to us that as we are trusting God, right, as we are seeking to be faithful to God, we must be careful that we are not allowing our sin and ourselves to lie to us. We have to be careful that we are following God's word. We are, we, are, we are seeking God's will through God's word. We are understanding God's word. We're understanding God's will because we are in God's word, reading God's word, praying through God's word. And we're not like Saul and his men who sought to destroy uh, the one whom God had plainly said would be the next king of Israel. Uh, and truthfully, we, we see this in our own society, don't we? As I've said, I mean, we, we, our society has come to the point of where we are just all about ourselves. And, and, and sin is lying to our society. Satan has lied to our society. Uh, and, and I would even say this, uh, um, sin, has, sin has so indwelt and is so indwelt in us that I, I think Satan doesn't have to do a lot. We simply are, we are sinners, and we, as, a, as all societies across the world, we, we have enough sin in us to lie to ourselves, no matter what. And it's interesting that when we're talking about trusting God to deal with and to repay our enemies, um, we have to be careful, to be, we have to be very careful, because there are, there are great difficulties in trying to determine providence, um, we see here in verses 3 through 5, right, where Saul is going uh, into the, the cave here to um, the, the, the King James here says to cover his feet. Um, the, the understanding is here is, is to literally um, to, to relieve himself. Um, he is going to use the restroom at this point uh, in the darkness of the cave because uh, no one would have been there with him. Uh, this would have been done, obviously, with secret and in private. And he's going there to, to relieve himself. And, and David's men seem to, seem to think, man, here is, here is God's enemy and your enemy, David, and he is served up on a silver platter. You should just kill him because God has promised you the kingdom and you should just be, it should be just done with it, right? You should, you should relieve yourself of, of, this, of this being pursued and you should avenge us and, and all of the wickedness that has been done to us. Uh, in our families uh, and and all of the wickedness that we have we have uh, we have seen and experienced, you should do this, David. And that's what God that's what that's what David's men tell him to do while he is there, while he is in in a very vulnerable position. David's men say, "Ha, kill him, 
be done with this. This is over with. After all, right, verse 3, God has served him up on a silver platter to you, David. And I would say to us that David, being a man of God, although certainly not perfect, and certainly as we'll see as we go through Samuel, um, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we'll see that David was far from perfect. Um, but I, I think it is important for us to know that David, he understands that while God's will is to give him the kingdom, there is a right way and a wrong way to get the kingdom. The right way is to wait on God and to, and to trust God and to look to God to help him. Um, the wrong way is to take matters into his own hand. I mean, we see time and time again in Scripture, when people take things into their own hands, what happens? I mean, think of Abraham. Um, think of Moses, right? Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years because he didn't wait upon the Lord to reveal what he was supposed to do. So he killed an Egyptian thinking that his brothers would know, uh, as the Bible tells us, that they should follow him. But instead, he's driven out because he's uh, sought for murder and they're going to kill him. And so he spends 40 years in the wilderness learning that he has to trust God. And over and over and over again, we see, we see example after example in Scripture about the right way and the wrong way to follow God and his will. And we have to be very careful as we're trusting God, as we're seeking to allow God to, to, to guide us and direct us, uh, at times even dealing with our enemies, that we have to be careful of, 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 of the counsel that we keep. Because they just may be wrong, may sound good, may look good, may, may, everything may seem to line up along, straight along the, the, the line, but in reality it's not good counsel. And that, that's what happens here. David, matter of fact, it says in verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Behold the day which the Lord said to you. Right? As a matter of fact, they're even saying, God told you to do this, David. You should do this. This is what God told you that was going to happen. And they're twisting God's word. They're twisting what God had said to him. And so David, to try to sort of figure out what he should be doing, he sort of plays a, a trick. And this is really what you should see here in the text, is, is that David is trying to play a clever trick. Um, he, he, he goes up, he sneaks up, because, I mean, you've got to remember, right, this, this cave would have been enormous, right? This wasn't uh, just a, a cave this size of this room. This would have been an enormous cave. So think Mammoth Cave, or think one of the other caves in, uh, in, our, uh, in our United States, or in, in some other place you've been. And think about all the, the crevices and the cracks and the recesses. This would have been a massive cave. And so pitch black, right, only lit by the backdrop of the light in the front from the front of the cave as the sunlight came through, but just literally through the first few feet of the cave, Saul had, re had, had gone back into the recess of this cave. And so David now stealthily sneaks forward. He now then takes and he cuts off, it says the corner, or the, literally the edge, the, the ornament of, of the robe here of Saul. Now, the one thing you need to know why David did this was simply this, that a person's ornaments on their robes and the hems of their, on the hem of their robes said a lot about their status, right? It um, says a lot about who they were, says a lot about their status, says a lot about who they were politically, who they were economically. I mean, this said everything that somebody needed to know. If you wanted to know something about somebody, look at the edge, look at the bottom of their robe and the, all the ornaments that were there. If you were a poor person, you didn't have any. If you were a rich person, you had a lot. If you were a person of power, you had a lot more. And so Saul would have had everything necessary to show that he was the king of Israel. And so what does David do? David says, well, I don't know that I want to kill him, so I'm going to stealthily sneak up here. I'm going to cut off a, a, an ornament uh, from his robe that shows that he's the king of Israel particularly, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to hold on to that and see what happens. And this this would have been a very ornate thing. And David suggested here 
by doing this, I think David is suggesting to Saul that he could have cut off Saul's reign in an instant. He could have taken Saul's life if he wanted to, but he was not going to do this. Because David, as a result, the the Spirit of God deals with David, and it says in verse 5 that his conscience struck him, right? His heart smote him. His conscience struck him. He was stricken in his to his to the core of his being for what he had done. Because it wasn't again, it wasn't his place to remind Saul he uh, that he was God was going to cut off his reign. God had already told Saul this over and over again that this was going to happen. And so David had a very sensitive conscience of the Spirit of God working in him, and so he was reminded that he has to trust God. Saul, of course, he does, David does use this to remind Saul, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And instead, in verses 6 and 7, we see David reminding his men that it's not his place to kill Saul. It's not his place. God is the one that he has to trust, and he is the one who has to repay sin and evil. Now, let me say this really quickly. The system of justice was broken at this point, okay? The system of justice was broken. David saw the only recourse available to him in this instance, which was to run and to hide and to fight only if necessary. But let me say this. It is not wrong and it is not sinful if you have been sinned against and someone has, has, not, has not repented that you should either A, if it is a crime, report them to the police and B, if they are unrepentant, report them to the elders and the church itself. This is not wrong. And, and, but David, in David's instance, this was not possible for him because the, the, the ones that he should have been appealing to were the very ones who were perverting justice and pursuing him. But in our instance and in our case, should we be the victims of a crime? It's not wrong. We shouldn't say, oh, you know, God's going to pay him back. That is true. God will, God will, in fact, repay. But that doesn't negate our responsibility if we're victims of a crime to report a crime. Or if we are a victim of sinfulness and, and, a, and a member of a congregation's refusal to repent, to bring that accusation before the congregation. Neither one of those things are wrong. So don't read anything like that into our text. Because I know that in times gone by, there have been many who have used these types of texts to say, well, you know, just let God take care of it. That, that's not the point, and that's a perversion of the text. So instead, though... David acts wisely, and he knows that the best defense is a good offense. Oh, I'm sorry, the best offense, I got that backwards. The best offense is a good defense. And so he says, he says, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm simply going to defend myself. And David would have fought had he been discovered and Saul tried to kill him. David was not going to just go quietly, right? David would have defended himself, but David was not going to take it upon himself to then destroy King Saul. There's a, there's a, and, and sometimes, listen, sometimes, my friends, sometimes, brothers and sisters, we can do everything to live at peace with people, right? I mean, you can be a good neighbor, you can be a good friend, you can be, you can be nice to the people, and, and people are not going to be nice to you. People are going to not live at peace with you. It's not always possible. There's a great exchange. There's a fantastic exchange in the uh, in the, in the, in both the books and as the, well as in the movie of, of the Lord of the Rings uh, between there's a, there's an exchange that happens between the uh, Theoden king of Rohan and Aragorn the rightful king of Gondor and this is they're, they're discussing whether or not uh, to go to war um, and Theoden says this or Theoden says I will not risk open war 
To which Aragorn responds, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. And that's the fact of the matter with David. David didn't seek this. David didn't try to, 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 uh, to destroy Saul or harm Saul in any way. And yet Saul is seeking him to destroy him. And at times, we're going to see the open conflict of relation, in relationships, whether or not we ever sought that, not because we sought it, but because it's just the reality of who and what we're dealing with. Things don't always go as well as we would like them. Open war sometimes is upon us, whether we would want to risk it or not. And we have to deal with those times. We have to deal with those issues. Second of all, though, when we're talking about trusting God, we, are, we have to trust God to defend us from our enemies in verses 8 through 15. Now, notice what David does here in verses 8 through 15, right? Notice how David approaches. Even though he's going to call Saul to, to, to repentance through his words, even though he is going to confront Saul with his sin, even though he's going to call Saul out for what he has done, what is the posture in which he is doing this? Well, we'll notice the first thing he does in verse 8 is he calls him my lord the king. The second thing he does is he bows his face to the ground. The third thing that he does in bowing his face to the ground is that he then ultimately prostrates himself out before the king. Then fourthly he calls him in verse 11 father, right? It's respectful. He's he's addressing him respectfully. And then fifthly he calls himself a dead dog and sixthly he refers to himself as a single fleet. Now what ultimately is David doing here? Well, even though David is speaking truth to power, even though David is calling out sin, even though David is calling out wickedness, even though uh, David is, is calling Saul to repentance, he does so with the respect that is proper to the office to which Saul has, has been given. He does so with respect. Um, he does so properly. He does so honorably. And, and, and this is true for us. It is good and well when we, we should call out sin. We should. We should call out sin in our own hearts, first and foremost, right? But when we see sin carrying the day, we should not be shy to call out sin and say sin is sin in life, in, this, in our society, in our, in our homes, in, in, our, in our businesses, a place of, of business and, and whatnot. We should do that, but we should do it with the respect that is proper in doing that. We should honor the ones that we are calling out. Does that mean that they're going to appreciate it? Absolutely not. But, does, but should we do it with honor? Yes, respectfully, we should do it. Does it mean we should back down? Never, never back down from truth. Never back down from righteousness. Never back down from calling sin, sin. Never do that. But we should do so with a stature of, of, of humility and respect for the people that we're talking to. Uh, again, with strength, with honor, with integrity, being not willing, to, not willing to compromise our convictions or the conviction that we have from Scripture, but never doing so um, in a way that dishonors the other person. And then David ultimately gives a defense. He gives a defense. And, and so at times there are places for you and I to give a defense for, for things that are wrong. Paul gave a defense. Jesus uh, even... Uh, even at times gave a defense for why he was doing what he did. Uh, other examples throughout scripture. Why? So it's not wrong to necessarily defend ourselves. Um, David himself calls out corruption here. Do you notice what David says here in verse 9? Look, look, look what he says here in verse 9. He says, And David said to Saul, Wherefore, hear you your men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt. So in this one 
phrase, what is David doing? Well, he's calling out all the counselors of Saul. He is saying, he is calling to Saul and he's saying, why are you believing your kingly counselors? Why are you listening to Doag, right? The, the evil guy who slaughtered the priests of God at Nob. Why are you listening to the evil spirit that is upon you? Why are you listening to your military leaders? Why are you listening to you, even to your own family members? Why are you not instead remembering that I have been good to you, I have honored you, and I love you and respect you? And so he calls them out, and he does so again from a stature without, without compromising at all. He does not compromise in the least here, and yet he calls them out. And instead, he appeals to two different things. In verses 10 and 11, he, he appeals to his current faithfulness, right? I've not sought your harm. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he also then does, in fact, appeal to his past faithfulness. And then he'll also appeal to, to, to his future promises of faithfulness, and then he'll appeal to God. But, but he's appealing to his present, his present faithfulness and then his past faithfulness. He's not been evil. He's not rebelled. He's not sinned against him. But instead, he appeals to God as his sovereign judge and the one that has to judge between him and Saul. And so he calls upon God. And before Saul, he says, Saul, I call upon God to, to judge between you and I. Who's the sinner? Who's done what? And it's interesting here how David appeals to God. He does say I call, you know, that he calls upon the judge of all the earth to do this, to, to judge between them. But notice what he says here in verse 15, how this goes in verse 15. He says, the Lord, therefore, the judge, and judge between me and me and you, or me and thee, and see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of your hand. Do you notice how David here appeals to the Lord and to his, adjust, to his justice? One, that God sees what you're doing, man. God sees you. Whether or not you know I see you, it doesn't matter. God sees you, and God sees what you're doing. Second of all, I, God, God will defend me. I appeal to God to defend me. I know he will defend me. And as a result, then, what does he say? God will, the Lord will deliver me. The Lord will deliver me. And in the end, in verse 15, David ultimately says, I'm not going to be the one to take the shortcut. I'm not going to be the one to take the shortcut. Christian, there are shortcuts galore in our lives where we'll say, oh, you know, if I just do this, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not, I mean, I'm still being obedient to God, you know, but, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's not as difficult as if I take choice A. But God hasn't called us to take shortcuts. There is no shortcuts in our sanctification. There's no shortcuts in becoming more like Christ. There's no shortcuts to holiness. There's no shortcuts to obedience in Christ. Because in the end, what looks like a shortcut to obedience turns out to be disobedience. Right? So we're called to be holy. We're called to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. And we're called not to take shortcuts to the will of God and to obedience to God. God has called us to be faithful to him. And he's not called you and I to try to find the shortest route to that point. He has called us to trust him. He has called us to, to take faithfully what he's called us to do and just keep being obedient until he does ultimately show us what we should be doing. Lastly, then, when we're talking about God delivering us and defending us and trusting in God, we must remember the deceitfulness of false repentance. Because what does Saul do here in verses 16 through 22? Saul starts crying. Saul starts crying. I mean, if you can't believe a crying person when they're saying they're sorry, who else can you believe, right? 
You know, somebody's done you wrong and they start crying and blubbering and, 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 and slobbering. I'm so sorry. I mean, who else can you trust? But, but Saul is going to prove that even though he does this, he's not sorry. I mean, he says at first that he's sorry. He says, oh, David, you know, you're my son. He calls him his son, right? And he calls him, he admits that David is righteous in verses 17 through 19. And that, he, that Saul says, oh, my own actions have been so wicked. Saul acknowledges that David in verses 19 and 20 is even going to be king. Saul says, yes, I know God what God has said. And in verse 21, he says, oh, David, please be merciful. I've sinned, but please be merciful to me and my family. And David says he would. But what's the problem here? The problem is, is that Saul's remorse and repentance... It didn't come from a place of a changed heart. Right? It didn't come from a place that had been changed and transformed by the grace of God. This was a man who, who was stricken in his conscience for what he had done because he knew what he was doing was wrong. But his heart had not been changed. And it's so easy for us day in and day out to say to God, God, I'm so sorry for all I've done and to cry and even to weep and to slobber all over the place and, and just, just let drool hang down and well, I'm just so sorry. But the heart has never changed. We're sorry we got caught. We're sorry that, that, that for the shame right, that I've done, the shamefulness, right, because now everybody's going to know what I've done, my family or whoever, But don't confuse worldly sorrow with godly repentance. Don't confuse worldly sorrow with godly repentance, with true repentance. You see, worldly sorrow is is sorry for getting caught. True repentance is a change of heart that isn't sorry, that it isn't just sorry that it got caught. Obviously, there's some shame in that. But it's true repentance gets to the deals with the heart of this, that, there, that I, I, I am a sinner and I need God's grace in my life. I need God through his spirit to change me, to transform me. It's difficult. You see, it's easy for me to take a few classes and to go a few places and to talk to some people and to go confess to my pastor and to do all this. It's easy to do that. The hard work comes when I'm asking and pleading with God to change my heart to give me repentance, repentance for for thinking and doing and looking and all of these other things. There's a difference here. There's a difference between, oh, man, I'm sorry I got caught in the shame that I now have to live with. And, and, oh, man, you know, maybe I'm sorry that my family has to live with this shame that that now everybody in my family knows what I'm doing. There's no change. There's no change. No change in our hearts. There's no true repentance. And it calls upon the Lord of all the earth to change our hearts. To change our minds. To actually repent over my sin. And we have to be careful. Right? Because listen, I, I, you, you, you do this long enough. You, you, talk, to enough, you talk to enough addicts. You talk to enough addicts, and I don't care what addiction's out there, pornography, um, talk to enough uh, um, uh, drunks or, or people hooked on crack, cocaine, whatever, um, or even addicted to their 
adulterous relationships. You talk to enough people after a while. You do this long enough, you talk to enough people. Everybody's sorry. Everybody's sorry. But very few truly want to repent. Everybody's sorry. Everybody's sorry. But nobody or very few people want to repent. And that's Saul. That's Saul. Thomas Watson, Puritan, I think has some great steps if we really want to know if what we're doing is true repentance, right? Because you're saying, well, Pastor, you're saying there's a difference between worldly sorrow and and true repentance. How do I know the difference, right? Because they can be very similar. They are very similar to one another. How, how How do I know this? Well, Here's the difference. If you want to know, I think, again, Thomas Watson does a great job in in dealing with the steps of true repentance. And I I want to just sort of follow his lead in this. First, we need to see sin for what it is, sin. We need to see it. We don't need to make excuses for it. right? We don't need to to crouch it. We don't need to, to, to... hedge our, uh, our bets and sort of just sort of bring it out into the light. We need to drag our sin out into the light and we need to expose it to the light and we need to say this is sin in all of its hideous grossness. That's the first thing we need to do. Second thing, we need to have, we need to have sorrow over our sin. We need to ask, seek for genuine sorrow by from God over our sin, not just sorrow for getting caught. Not just sorrow for getting caught. Confession and confessing our sin. Calling it for what it is. Right? We, we have such nice words today, don't we? We have such nice words for sin now. We have addictions. Addictions for everything. We have, we have addictions. And I'm not, I'm not arguing that, that addictions aren't real. I, they are. I'm not, I'm not arguing and, and trying to be disrespectful in that sense but but we 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 say nice things we don't like to say what they really are right we call things by nicer names we call them by nicer things but we have to be very honest with God and before God on what it is that we're dealing with and there should be a holy bashfulness so there's seeing sin as sin. Second of all, there's genuine sorrow, asking God to genuinely grant us sorrow over our sin. There's thirdly, confession of our sin. Fourthly, there is a holy bashfulness, embarrassed by my sin. And then fifthly, there is a hatred for my sin. Now notice this, I said my sin, right? My sin. Not making excuses, but hating my sin. And then turning from my sin. But none of this is possible unless you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not a single bit of this is possible. There is no transformation. There can be be external transformation, but there's not going to be a heart transformation. And this is why it's so important, I think, we see Jesus here in this text and remind ourselves what Christ has done for us. You say, what do you mean Jesus in this text, Pastor? Well, let let me show you. I think there's five different ways Jesus appears in this text. First, Jesus is the greater David who, like David, refused to grasp the crown before the cross. He refused to instead to take, not take the shortcut to the promised kingdom, but instead willingly, willingly died upon the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for sinners, that all who'd repent and believe the gospel would be saved. 
Second of all, Jesus is the greater David who, like David, refused his disciples' encouragement to take the shortcut in Mark 8, 31 through 33, right? They, they encouraged Jesus just to, just to establish the kingdom now. Thirdly, Jesus is the greater David in that he refused to retaliate against his enemies, but instead prayed for them upon the cross. Fourthly, Jesus is the greater David in that he not only refused to retaliate, but instead of retaliating, he died for the enemies of the kingdom that they, through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, would rather become sons and daughters. Fifthly, Jesus is the greater David in that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And we'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And I think it's important for us to see Christ's work so that we can then seek in his work for him to transform us to the gospel. Quickly, let me just apply this, I think, in four different ways. Christian 1, be very careful with providence. We must be careful that we don't read God's will into the, every circumstance of our lives because we can end up in all kinds of crazy cockamamie places. Second of all, God calls you and I to make room for the wrath of God and not to take vengeance and revenge on our enemies. As a matter of fact, God says for us to do good to our enemies. Thirdly, it is not wrong for us to appeal to the Lord for justice. I mean, after all, this is the heart of the imprecatory prayers. The, the whole idea and the whole purpose of the imprecatory prayers in Psalms, if you don't know what those are, those are the, hey, God bashed their heads in and destroyed them and killed them all, those prayers in Psalms. If you don't believe they're in there, go read Psalms because clearly you've not read Psalms because they're in there. And he calls, he doesn't call for revenge. He's calling for God's justice to be unleashed upon the enemies of God. And again, I want to emphasize here very clearly, it is not wrong, neither is it revenge for you to report a crime that has happened. Neither is it sinful or wrong for you to report to the church, to the, to the, to the pastor and the, the pastors and the, the church itself when sin is ongoing in the local church. And lastly, I would just simply remind us, Christian, don't cut corners. You can't cut corners to holiness. And lastly, let me make one more application here. The only way, if you are here this morning and have never trusted Christ, the only way for you to even begin any of this, any of this that I'm talking about, true repentance, true lasting gospel change in your life and in your heart and in your family, right? The only thing that will last in your life, the only change that will truly last in your life is for you to repent of your sin and come to Christ by faith by faith in Christ. And so that is the invitation before us. Christian, trust Christ. Unbeliever, those who have never trusted Christ, trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we ask that your blessing would be upon your people. Help us to remember your grace and your work on our behalf at the, on the cross and in the resurrection. We thank you for true lasting hope that you give us in Christ. We ask that you would transform our hearts and our minds now in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.